0: Daniel chapter 5, uh, I read the text for us earlier, but, uh, so I won't read it again, but we'll be pointing to it at several different points here in uh, the sermon. But as we pick up here in this story this morning, uh, just to be aware of, about probably 30 years or so have passed between the closing of chapter 4 and the humility of Nebuchadnezzar that we looked at a couple of weeks ago, and then the opening of the story of Belshazzar in chapter 5. Uh, We are introduced here uh, to the last of the Babylonian kings. After Nebuchadnezzar's reign had ended, uh, the Babylonian throne uh, went through some tumult in that 30-year time period from Nebuchadnezzar to Belshazzar. Uh, So uh, you noticed here, just uh, by way of reference, as we read the text earlier, there were a couple of notes there where Nebuchadnezzar is referenced as Belshazzar's father, uh, just so you know, uh, that word "father" is used oftentimes in the uh, Old Testament and in the Scriptures, actually in the New Testament as well. Not necessarily to mean the literal father, as if Belshazzar is Nebuchadnezzar's son, but as an ancestor or one of his fathers. Just like we would say that Abraham is our father. Uh, it's not that Abraham uh, birthed all of us, or you know, but but that we belong to his lineage by faith. And so. Uh, Belshazzar probably was the grandson of the great king Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, Succeeding Nebuchadnezzar was his son, evil Murdoch. We know from him uh, from uh, the book of Second Kings. Uh, but uh, he was overthrown in a coup around 560 BC. And then the final king to set on the Babylonian throne was King Nabonidus. Now, Nabonidus was wildly unpopular and he had to, uh, let's say, vacate his palace in Babylon, but lest his uh, uh, authority be removed with him, he set over uh, his kingdom his son, Belshazzar, uh, as kind of a vice-regent or a co-king, if you will. Uh, And so there he uh, is introduced to us in Daniel chapter 5. Now, Daniel doesn't include these historical details because at the end of the day, they really don't matter to the story, right? What Daniel wants us to see and to remember is the spiritual conflict of the story of Daniel. No doubt, he wants us to see the clear contrast between Nebuchadnezzar and his successor, Belshazzar. God was patient with King Nebuchadnezzar. As we saw last week, he gave him multiple opportunities to humble himself and to learn that God alone is God. But God's judgment of Belshazzar in the story is sudden and it's final. Sinclair Ferguson says this is a reminder that we dare not presume upon the grace of God that he has shown to others. To know that God is gracious and yet to turn from sin in light of that grace is to fall under his righteousness. Judgment. This chapter reminds us of what we saw both in chapters 2 and last time in chapter 4 that the kings and the kingdoms of this world are all passing away. Only God's kingdom and only Christ Jesus, the King of kings, is eternal. So, with that, I want to remind us once again of Daniel's main idea and his main purpose. His main idea and his main purpose there, remember that Daniel's main idea is that God is in control. He is sovereign over all, even in the most difficult of circumstances, and he's sustaining his followers' faith. And Daniel's main purpose, the reason why he writes this book, is to encourage us believers to live faithfully as citizens of God's kingdom. Indeed, just like Daniel, we are strangers in a strange land. But we are encouraged by Daniel's story. We're encouraged by this story. (laughs) to remain faithful as we live faithfully as citizens of God's kingdom. So let's look at this story of God's sovereign grace and of his holy judgment in action. There are three things I want us to see here from Daniel chapter 5. The first thing there you see in your notes is that God meets spiritual rebelliousness with his divine revelation. We've seen this before. We've seen it. Matter of fact, in every single chapter that we've looked at in uh, Daniel's uh, story. But this story here, chapter five, opens with King Belshazzar. He's throwing a huge dinner party. But this just isn't any old dinner party. It was actually a very strange dinner party, both in its timing and in the activities that took place. Now, this this party was strange because of its timing because the king schedules basically what amounts to a drunken booze fest right in the middle of what seems to be a siege upon his city. We'll get to more uh, more here in just a bit, but literally knocking at the fortified wall of Babylon are both the Median and the Persian armies along with their leader, Darius. Now Babylon was truly a mighty city. It had as many as four fortified walls. Uh, It it had a moat actually that was dug around it and surrounded it. But still these mighty armies were at the door. And in verse one tells us that Belshazzar, uh, the king of this mighty city, uh, he's not there defending his kingdom. He's not there on the walls gathering his lords and his armies uh, to fight for their city, to defend their citizens. Instead, he he gathers his lords and his armies, and throws them a big party, and gets drunk. This is a horrible king, a horrible king. Either he horribly underestimated the invading, the invading armies, and overestimated his own defenses, or he just didn't care anymore. And he figured, if I'm going to go out, I'm going to go out having a little bit of fun. Regardless, we see this wicked ruler transgressing his kingly duties, getting completely drunk. And if that wasn't bad enough, verses 2 through 4 tell us that during this drunken party, Belshazzar commits blatant blasphemy against the one true and living God. You notice there as he drinks the wine and it starts to take effect on his body, he calls for all the vessels of gold and silver from God's temple in Jerusalem to be brought out to be served uh, so that wine can be served from them. And so he takes these objects that were used as symbols in Solomon's temple as the, as the symbol of God's power in his presence, and he now takes them and uses them to toast his own God's. So don't read this as, you know, King Belshazzar whipping out the fine china for his guests. No, this is what he thinks of the one true and living God. He had conquered his power. He had overcome his presence. And now he was using these symbols to toast his own gods. This is Nebuchadnezzar spitting in the face of God. It's the height. Of spiritual rebellion. But what God does next literally brought the king into instant sobriety. God sent Belshazzar a divine message by writing it on the wall with his very finger. And even though Belshazzar saw this with his own eyes, he either couldn't read the writing or simply he didn't know what it meant. Either way, What he did in response is absolutely familiar to us as we have studied through the book of Daniel. He called for all of his spiritual advisors, right? He he called for the magicians and for the astrologers and for the Chaldeans, and he turned again to the spiritual bankruptcy of his pagan advisors, only to find them yet again now for a fifth time completely incompetent and empty of wisdom. What I want you to see here from this is that it wasn't Belshazzar's drunkenness that caused his blindness to God's revelation. It was his rebellious heart. There's two lessons I want us to learn from this. Two lessons I want us to learn from Belshazzar. First, knowing God's revelation, knowing truth is no guarantee that will respond rightly to it. Knowing truth is a good thing, but mere knowledge of truth is no guarantee for a right response. Not not only did Belshazzar literally have God's writing on the wall, he also had knowledge of Nebuchadnezzar's experience. You see, Belshazzar, probably the grandson of the great king, probably watched God humble his grandfather, his royal ancestor, this great head of gold from chapter two, the builder of mighty Babylon. But he didn't learn the costly uh, costly lesson that God taught Nebuchadnezzar. A friend, you may be here this morning thinking, you know, God, if you would just speak to me, if you would just give me a sign, then I would trust in you and I would believe in you if you would only speak to me in some way. Well, friend, perhaps you've heard that before. Perhaps you've felt that before. Perhaps you know others who have thought that way before. But this is the the truth that we learn here, right? Knowing truth is important. But you have to be wise and humble enough to receive it and to let it change your life. The question for you is, can you read the writing on the wall? I think there's relevance also to this church body. Brothers and sisters, I think that we are right here in this place to place the highest premium on the preaching and the teaching of God's word. I think that's right for us as a church to do. But I think this passage sobers us and helps us to remember that having God's word without God's spirit only produces spiritual pride. We must plead with the Holy Spirit, to give us hearts of obedience, to let God's holy word produce within us life-changing obedience. We need to let God's word, uh, let the Holy Spirit of God use God's word to humble us so that we can walk with Christ. So that's the first lesson. Truth without obedience is, is useless. The second important lesson here is that God will not be mocked. God will not be mocked. Galatians 6, 7, and 8 says, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever is sown, that he will also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh, from the flesh he will reap corruption. But the one who sows in the Spirit will from the Spirit reap life. All of that in Galatians 6 is with uh, within the context of what we just saw. That truth without obedience is useless. So to listen to God's word and to ignore it is to mock the living God. It's in essence to say to him, yeah, okay, I understand what you're saying, but I know better. I think that all of us in this way can sometimes be little Belshazzars in our own way. But God's mercy to us today is that we have his word. So like the scripture says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. Do not follow the example of Belshazzar. That brings us to point number two. Point number two, God judges unrepentant rebellion. God judges unrepentant rebellion. Now, for whatever reason, in this time period between Nebuchadnezzar and Belshazzar, we see that Daniel has kind of fallen off the radar of the king of Babylon. He's fallen into obscurity in Belshazzar's court. Whatever the reason, you know, why that happened, we don't know But while Belshazzar has forgotten about Daniel, God has not, and neither apparently has this queen. Now, who is this queen that we're introduced to here in verse 10? Well, uh, one option is that this is one of Belshazzar's wives. I I don't think that that is likely because what was said in verses 2 through 4, we know that his wives, all of his wives and all of his concubines were there with him uh, at this dinner party. Uh, But the queen that's introduced to us in verse 10 has wisely removed herself from this party. So probably this queen that's mentioned in verse 10 is the queen mother. It's Belshazzar's mom, uh, the king's wife, the true king's wife. Uh, So, uh, his mom comes in as his uh, he's forgotten about Daniel, and he's turned to these uh, you know useless pagan wise men to get his answers, and uh, that hasn't worked. And so uh, it says that his countenance has failed, his knees are knocking together, and he is greatly alarmed. And his mom comes to him, this queen mother or it could have been his grandmother. It actually could have been the wife of King Nebuchadnezzar himself. She boldly approaches Belshazzar and reminds him of Daniel's spirit-filled wisdom. I love how she speaks of Daniel in verse 11 there. There is a man in your kingdom. There is a man in your kingdom. And then she goes on to describe Daniel as light, understanding wisdom, an excellent spirit, knowledge, an interpreter of dreams, an explainer of riddles, and a solver of problems. You know, this this reminds me of another woman that we read about in scripture. She's not a queen. Uh, She's not a queen mother (laughs) or anything like that. Uh, No, she was a Samaritan woman. Uh, A Samaritan woman who had been married five times who was currently living with her live-in boyfriend, and she went to Jacob's well in the middle of the day to avoid the crowds because she was an outcast in her community. And She went this one particular day, and there she met this prophet, this man named Jesus. You know, this woman had her own version of unrepentant rebellion, And here she was, all alone in the heat of the day, hopeless, wondering what to do. Jesus has a conversation with her, reveals everything about her that she has known or has ever done. She begins to have a conversation with him and she says, you know, well, when the Messiah comes, he's going to straighten all this stuff out for us. Do you remember Jesus' response to that? She said, lady, I am that man. Do you remember how she responded? She left her water jug sitting there at the well and she ran and began to tell everyone who would listen, come and meet a man who told me everything that I ever did. He was a man who was the wife He was the light of men. He was the interpreter of dreams and the solver of problems. Come meet a man who told me everything that I ever did. Friends, it's just another reminder that all of these great stories, all of these Old Testament heroes are just paving the way to Jesus. They're just pointing straight forward to Jesus who is the wisdom of God incarnate and in whom the Holy Spirit Else. Notice how Belshazzar greets Daniel. At this point, Daniel's an old man. He's probably well into his 80s. He comes into the king's presence. The king sees him, and he says there in verse 13, oh, you are that Daniel. You are that Daniel. One of the exiles of Judah, right, who my father, the king, brought out from Judah. It's almost dismissive, It's certainly condescending. Yeah, it's true. Daniel is a captive, but he's God's servant and he's God's messenger. And Daniel is a visible reminder of God's sovereignty over the kings of the earth. And you notice there in the story, he cannot be bought with all of the wealth and all of the power of Belshazzar. So beginning in verse 18, Daniel gave Belshazzar what he was seeking and he started with a history lesson. I wonder how many of you growing up got yourself in some trouble only for your parents or grandparents to begin your punishment by giving you a history lesson. Maybe I'm the only one, I don't know. But that was the problem. Belshazzar had failed to learn from Nebuchadnezzar's history. And now he was doomed to repeat it. His problem was his heart of persistent unrebellion against God. And now finally, after generations of opportunities, Belshazzar and his kingdom's time was up. Look down at verses 22 and 23. And you notice just in these two verses, how Daniel brings God's judgment down directly on Belshazzar. With machine gun-like repetition, Daniel aims God's judgments directly at Belshazzar's chest and he unloads 14 times. In these two verses, you read the word you or your. There is no mistaking. God had given Belshazzar every opportunity to humble himself, but he did not listen. So now God is going to bring not only Belshazzar low, but he's going to take out all of Babylon with him. Now it's interesting, it's not until verses 24 and 26 that we're told what God's handwriting said and what the interpretation was. That's a long way into this passage <laughs> before we get the answers to the question, right? Three words. Actually, it's four words, but the first one was repeated. First, Mene numbered, meaning that God had numbered the days of Belshazzar's kingdom, and his time was up. God's patience was meant to lead him into repentance, but that patience had run out. Second, Tekel, or weighed, meaning God had weighed Belshazzar in the balance and he was found to come up short. You think of the picture of Lady Justice uh, that is the symbol of our justice system. This lady with a blindfold on who holds out the scale with one hand and you weigh the evidence on both sides and find out which way uh, comes out to be true. He'd been weighed in God's balances and he, found, he was found short. Finally, parson or perez, a play on words, literally meaning divided, but also rhyming with the word Persia. The armies that had gathered at that moment at Belshazzar's front door. No more opportunities to repent. No more lessons from history to learn. No more gracious revelations or writings on the wall. All that remained for Belshazzar. Was judgment, And friends, if God judged Belshazzar, this definitely for his persistent, unrepentant rebellion, how much more will he judge you for rejecting his one and only son? You see, every single one of us are sinners. The scripture says that all of us have been weighed in the balances and we've been found wanting. Paul says in Romans 3, 23, that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But God, in his mercy, sends Jesus, his perfect eternal son, to live a perfect life for you and to die on the cross as your perfect sacrifice for your sins. And God looked upon that perfect sacrifice of Jesus and he accepted it by raising Jesus from the dead. And the scripture says that all who would turn to Jesus and who would receive his forgiveness will never face God's judgment, but would only have the promise of eternal life. This is the gospel message. This is God's honest truth to you this morning. The only question is, can you read the writing on the wall? Be warned, if you do not repent, And if you do not turn to Jesus, the writer of Hebrews says that it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. So friends, I pray that we would learn our history lesson today. That we would learn from Belshazzar's mistake. Do not harden your hearts against God. Listen to his word. Receive his promise of salvation today. And that brings us to our third and our final point. Our third and final point point here, that God will vindicate his name and his faithful servants. God will vindicate his name and his faithful servants. You notice here in these last three verses of this chapter the difference, the contrast between Daniel's future and Belshazzar's future. Daniel first. says, As for Daniel, God spared Daniel. Not only did God spare Daniel, God promoted Daniel yet again. Uh, So great and important Daniel became that he would serve in high places of authority throughout the reign of Darius the Mede and Cyrus the Persian after him. God redeemed him out of obscurity and vindicated him, all while vindicating his holy name, which Belshazzar had profaned. In Daniel chapter 7, Daniel records for us a vision of another man a man that Daniel describes as the son of man who was yet to come. And this son of man would suffer on behalf of his people. But the ancient of days would vindicate this son of man out of his suffering and would give him a kingdom that would be an everlasting kingdom. And Daniel says that all dominions will serve and obey him. Friends, this suffering yet vindicated and highly exalted son of man that Daniel sees in the vision is none other than Christ Jesus himself. He came and he suffered on your behalf and he died in your place, but God vindicated him and gave him a name that is above all names. Again, the question is, do you know him? Do you trust him? Do you love him? This is the gospel message we proclaim. It's the gospel message that Daniel points us forward to. And friends, it's this gospel message that we need the Holy Spirit's help to proclaim. It may feel like at times as a Christian that you are sharing this gospel in vain. It may feel like at times that you are laboring for Jesus in obscurity. But remember Daniel and remember Daniel's God. God does not forget his servants. Though they're slighted in the sight of the world and though they preach a gospel that seems like foolishness to those who are perishing, God uses you in his own time and he uses you in his own way. So just stay faithful. Now as for Belshazzar, the whole kingdom of Babylon, you notice how quickly comes crashing in his throne upon the ash heap of history. Justice comes to full fruition. Look at verse 30. That very night, Belshazzar the Chaldean was killed and Darius received the kingdom of Babylon. Friend, it's just another reminder that God's judgment is swift, but that his patience is an opportunity to repent. Again, today is the day of salvation. Well, in 1945, really just a few short months after the end of World War II on the European front, Sir Winston Churchill, the great prime minister of Great Britain, stood in front of an American audience and gave one of his most famous speeches. It's known as the Iron Curtain speech. You may have listened to it or read it before. You can actually watch videos of this very speech. In that speech, Churchill pointed out that <clears throat> there was, he was on a mission to garner support for America and Great Britain and the other allies to begin some hard negotiations with the Soviet Union. You see, America and Great Britain, the Allies, had pulled out of war-torn Germany, but there was still a military presence there in Germany of the Soviet Union. And Churchill's concern was that the Soviets, who still occupied that area, if left unchecked, would begin setting up yet another socialistic and communistic government in Germany that they had just gone through great expense and a huge amount of time to tear down. He was concerned that the Soviets would swallow up Germany and all of the other small European war-torn countries around it and that they would fall behind an iron curtain. Famously, Churchill said in that speech that those who fail to learn for history are condemned to repeat it. Well, friends, as we look to the story of Daniel, we're seeing God's story played out in history. The question is, will you learn the hard lessons that it has to teach us? Will we learn from Belshazzar and from Nebuchadnezzar and from Darius' mistakes? And the lesson is clear, as the psalmist says in Psalm 90, lest we finish our years with a sigh, as Belshazzar did, we should pray, Lord, teach us to number our days, that we can gain a heart of wisdom.